How many of you enjoyed the rain this week? Amen. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, I myself did not enjoy the rain. I don't know what it is. Uh, maybe it's because I spent so many years in the desert, but I love the sunshine. And when the rains come, I get a little sad. I get a little depressed. It looks a little gray. But I know some of you uh, come from places where it rains a lot more. And so this is a welcome sight. It is definitely for uh, our region has been experiencing the drought. Uh, and so um, the rain is a welcome, welcome sight, especially because we've been promised El Nino, right? We've been promised El Nino. I was up on my roof uh, last month just patching things up because I thought it's going to fall on my family. Uh, but so far, not so much, uh, though the promise and <clears throat> the threat of torrential rain has not delivered, we are grateful for the rain. Because when there's drought, things become difficult. Uh, when uh, it doesn't rain, things become difficult. The resources dry up, uh, obviously becomes more expensive. Things get more expensive. When there's drought, there are significant complications in daily life. And that's exactly what we're talking about in the story of today. It's found in the book of 1 Kings, uh, chapter 18. We began last week uh, at 1 Kings, chapter 17. If you brought a Bible, you can open it up there and follow along with me as we're going to read and get into the Word. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. Feel free to open it up or on your smartphones or tablets. We've been studying the book of 1 Kings, specifically the story of Elijah the prophet. And the Bible tells us, and we began here last week in chapter 17, that Elijah literally shows up on the scene, marches into the, to the palace and into the presence of the king, King Ahab. And he says, there will be no rain, not even a drop of dew, unless I say so. And then he takes off, drops the mic, as we said, and he takes off. And we studied last week how essentially when he made that pronouncement, that prophecy, it stopped raining. And what's interesting about that, it's different from us, is not only did it not rain, but there wasn't even a drop of dew. Now, although we've been experiencing drought conditions here, here in San Diego especially, whether it's rained or not, when you wake up in the morning, there's a little bit of a soft little film. Anybody notice that? See, in the desert, we don't have that. In the desert, you go to bed dry, you wake up dry. But here, in the morning, if you sleep outside, you're going to wake up wet. Without rain. It's just there's so much moisture in the air. It's why we have green grass and trees, and it's so much greener here. So even though there's drought conditions and there's no rain, God still shows his favor by sending the dew. But in the story that we read, Elijah says to the people, Nuh-uh-uh, not even dew. Not a drop. Can you imagine that? How dry it would be here if we didn't have even dew? How brown the things would get? Yeah, you probably can't imagine it, but if you've lived in the desert, and some of y'all know what I'm talking about, it's brown. Right? It's brown. My first uh, uh, trip into the high desert where I used to work, I, I went to spy the place. I was told that's where you're going to work. Okay, so I went to spy the place, and I was driving down uh, the street, and this thing came out of the side. It was doing this thing. like It was huge. It was about, I don't know, three feet in diameter. It was just, and I was like, oh, what is that? It's a tumbleweed. Ever seen a tumbleweed? <clears throat> Just rolling it along, and I thought, no way, that's only in cartoons. I've never seen one in real life. But it's so dry, these things, the wind just picks them up and rolls them along. It's dry, and it's dead. Without rain, without dew, things dry up, and they die up. 
And that's exactly what had taken place. Elijah had made this pronouncement, there will be no rain, not even a drop of dew, and then he vanished. We studied the story. And for about three years, three and a half years, there was no rain, not even a drop of dew. And this is where we pick up the story, and it's found in the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. Follow along with me. I'm going to read as much as I can and go as quickly as I can. Here we go. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself. Theologians tell us that it was a little over three years, maybe about three and a half since he had made his pronouncement. And so you can only imagine how bad things would have gotten in three years with not a single drop of dew. How difficult it would have been to produce crops or to feed your animals or to keep things beautiful. And so the situation had gotten dire, and God comes and speaks again to Elijah and says, Okay, it's time. I want you to go back to King Ahab and present yourself, because I'm about to send rain. I will send rain. See, when God speaks, every time God speaks, he speaks with the confidence of a maker of the universe. Whenever God makes a pronouncement, he speaks with a certainty because he can always make it so. And so he speaks to Elijah and he says, I will send rain on the land. The Bible tells us, read along with me here. Elijah went to present himself and the famine was severe. That's to put it mildly. It was severe upon the land. And Ahab the king at the time had summoned Obadiah who was in charge of his palace. The Bible tells us that Obadiah was a, was a good man, a devout believer. That while Jezebel, the king's wife, by the way, you all recognize that name? Okay. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each supplied them with food and water. But Ahab said to Obadiah, his, his uh, right-hand man, go through the land to all of the springs and valleys, and maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. They had gotten so severe, uh, there was nothing for them to graze on, and, and, and the king sends his right-hand man, the caretaker of his palace, to go and try to find some food for the animals so we don't have to kill them. So they divided the land, verse 6, uh, they were to cover, and Ahab went in one direction, Obadiah in another. And as Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him, and Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord Elijah? Could it really be you? For three years, he had disappeared, vanished. As you'll see, they had been searching him all, all over, but could not find him. And there he is, suddenly, and Obadiah says, Is it, is it really you? Yes, Elijah says, go and tell your master, Elijah is here. I don't know if anyone else likes that phrase, but I do. There's a certain, uh, I don't know, there's a certain boldness to Elijah that keeps coming through. But he says, you go and tell him, I'm right here. Obadiah is kind of uh, stunned by the request and he says, what have I done wrong that you would uh, hand your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? Look at this. As surely as the Lord your God lives, there's not a nation or a kingdom where my master, the king, has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear that they could not find you. But now you tell me to just go find him and tell him, Elijah's here. I don't know if the Spirit of the Lord might take you up someplace and, and I won't find you. But if I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he's going to kill me. He, he explains to us that when, when Elijah had disappeared, Ahab was on the hunt for him. 
Because after Elijah had shown up on the scene, there was no rain, no dew, things had gotten bad. And Elijah uh, had disappeared, and the king felt like this was all Elijah's fault. So he was trying to find him, and he went looking for him. The Bible tells us, to all the neighboring nations, but Elijah was nowhere. And Obadiah says, if I go and tell him, you're here, and then you disappear on me, he'll kill me. And Elijah says to him, verse 15, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. I don't know if you can tell the echo there in Elijah's words, but there is a confidence in Elijah's speaking because he's speaking on behalf of the God who sent him. So when God says, I will, it gives power to Elijah to say, I will. And so Elijah says, uh, go and get your master. Tell him I'm here. And the Bible tells us that Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. And so Ahab went to meet Elijah. It's fascinating because, because the king was in his palace. And Obadiah says, if you want to see Elijah, you got to go see him. He's not coming to you. Ahab had been looking for this guy because he was so convinced that it was Elijah's fault that everything had gone wrong for the last three and a half years. The nation was suffering severe famine and hunger, and there were difficult situations, and Ahab was convinced this was all Elijah's fault. So this was his chance. The Bible tells us that he goes out to meet him, verse uh, 17, chapter 18, 1 Kings. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? It's kind of tongue-in-cheek here. I'm sure if this is translated well, but essentially he sees them and he's like, "Uh uh-huh, there you are, troublemaker. Anybody talk to you like that before, ever? No? Okay, good. You're good kids. All right. He says, it's you. You're the troublemaker. And Elijah responds and he says, I have not made trouble, but you have. You and your father's house and your father's family, you have abandoned the Lord's command and have followed the Baals. This is a moment here that has been building for three and a half years. The king has been looking for, 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 for Elijah to grab him and to force him to explain himself and to change the circumstances. And the king is convinced that all this bad stuff is a result of Elijah's troublemaking. And so when he finds him, he's like, I got you now, troublemaker. But Elijah confronts him with the actual truth of the situation. He says, I haven't made trouble. You have. You are the source of you and your father's family. Because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. And Baals are other gods, uh, other idols representing the neighboring nations. The king was so convinced that this was uh, the prophet's fault, but the prophet says, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You're the one who has abandoned God's commands and you have led the people to abandon God's commands. He says now, verse um, 19, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And by the way, bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. He says, it is not my fault, it is your fault. So let's get this, let's get this situation dealt with. 
you go get all the people and bring them up to Mount Carmel. And, and if you've ever read the story of the Bible, you know what's going to happen. But, but just try to picture the scene now. He says, you go get all the people. And by the way, bring with you the 450 prophets of Baal. That would have been like priests of Baal or, 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 or religious leaders of this particular cult. And bring also the 400 prophets of Asherah. And what that tells us is that uh, having so many priests of this particular uh, tradition, faith tradition, if you will, meant that this belief system was very well entrenched amongst the people of Israel, who were supposed to be the people of God. Y'all remember, because we've studied this here, that the people of God were born from God's blessing and God's calling them out. You remember, we studied it all last summer when God said to Moses, go get my people. They will be my people, called by my name. And he brought them to God's mountain, and he said, if, you remember, if you trust in me, the things that I'm going to give you, then we're going to have a next level relationship. You will be a nation of priests and you will represent me upon the earth and I will bless you abundantly. It's always been God's promise and the invitation. That was their heritage. That's who they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be the special people of God. But, but now, by the time we find them in the story, they have forgotten all that God had done in the past. They had forgotten about all the major moments and milestones that they had crossed with God at the helm. And they had begun to look to other ideas and other beliefs to find their identity, their purpose, their meaning. And in that search, they had uh, found upon the neighboring nations and what they believed in, the Baals and the Asherahs. And they said, well, maybe we can trust these things. Maybe we can trust these ideas or these beliefs. And they began to devote themselves to other ways. And because of that, trouble had come upon God's people. And this is what Elijah is calling out. He says, I'm not the source of the problem. You are because you have abandoned God's command. So get all the people and let's gather together and settle this once and for all. And by the way, bring those priests, those prophets. And the Bible tells us that Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and they assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God... Then follow him. I was telling you last week that uh, Elijah is, uh, is a pastor's hero. We dream and have fantasies about being like Elijah. He has such, you know, courage, such boldness. He just calls it like it is. And every pastor has this particular sermon saved in their back pocket for their last Sabbath at any particular church. Because we want to come and we want to just call it out and say, if God is God, then follow him already. But if Baal is God, then go. Follow him. Go straight to where that will lead you. And this is what Elijah does. He assembles the people. And he says, how long will you waver between two options? Now, in our current Life here at Benita, we tend to have a sense about ourselves that we're not, we're here, you're here, we're worshiping God, we're singing the songs, we're praying the prayers. But the truth is, we waver so much, friends, constantly flipping and flopping between truly trusting that God is who He says He is and doubting that. 
Yes, in their day, they had literal physical uh, temples made and, 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 and idols raised and they were doing services. We're not doing that, but inside our hearts and our minds and in our lives, if, if God could step into your life, would he see that you trust him and follow him or might he recognize other Baals in your life? Might God be able to call out other prophets who are leading you somewhere else? And Elijah says, let us just settle this once and for all. If God is God, then let's follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. How long will you waver? I've been wrestling with this, friends, because this is the honest truth. Our trust in God is often completely dependent on our circumstances. And aren't you tired of that? Aren't you tired of riding the roller coaster of whether you think God is real or he's not? No, I know what you're saying. Pastor, I know that God is real, but you know what I mean. Aren't you tired of riding the roller coaster where you feel like, oh, I'm close to God, I'm far from him. God really has my best interest. I don't know if he cares anymore. God has called me. No, he hasn't. Aren't you tired of riding the roller coaster? See, that's, that's, that's the way we have been uh, fooled these days. That somehow there are other more important voices, opinions, philosophies, ideas. That yeah, maybe God is good for some or good up to a point, but we understand things better now. We have more solid ways of living and yet the trouble is all around us as evidence that we have abandoned the Lord's command. See, isn't it interesting that when things are going well, God is good, but when things aren't going well, God is bad, it's his fault? Isn't that like, don't we tend to blame God every time things don't go the way we planned, hoped for, and prayed for? He gets all the blame. And Elijah says, be careful. You might be to blame. He says, I haven't brought trouble upon you, but you have by abandoning the Lord's commands. See, there's this, there's this thing about God. He loves us. That is his defining characteristic. He has your best interest always in mind and in heart. It's the only reason he does what he does, because he's trying to bless you and lead you and guide you. But when we get caught up in other voices and other ideas and other things that we allow to define ourselves, then we lose sight of God's blessings and his direction, his correction and his counsel, and we begin to try to find our own identity makers. We begin to try to find our own ideas and philosophies, and they might be good for a while. I'm telling you, when, when Ahab and Jezebel first led the people to worship Baals, it was fun. You don't know the half of it. They were doing all kinds of fun stuff at those churches. But the fun isn't going to last. You cannot be more blessed apart from God than you'll ever be with God, in the presence of God. It's just not possible, for he is all good and the source of everything good. And Elijah says, no, no, no. The reason you are suffering, careful now, is your fault. Now, nobody likes to hear that, friends. But if we took a good look at our lives, what might we see? 
What choices, behaviors, and habits have we allowed to set up camp in our own lives and in our families? What, what, what temples are we allowing to exist in our lives that do not worship God but line up with other beliefs, with other Baals? Elijah says, how long will you waver between these two things? If God is God, then let's follow him. If he's not God, why are you here? Why bother? Haven't you ever wondered that? If God isn't God, why go through this charade? Elijah says, let's settle this. Bring your prophets. You know the story, but I'll read it anyway. Bring your prophets, and let's settle this. Elijah says, verse 22, I'm going to read quickly. I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450. So get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves, and let, it cut, let them cut it into pieces, and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and I'll put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, capital L. And the God who answers by fire, then he is God. Sound fair? They said, yeah, that sounds good. We'll set up two altars. You call on yours, I'll call on mine. The one who answers by fire, that will be the true God. And the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets, choose one of the bulls, prepare it, and call on the name of God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull, verse 26, given to them and prepared it. Then they call on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response, no one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. A few hours later at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. That's why he's one of our heroes. He says, why don't you shout louder? Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought. I like that one. Picture it, right? Maybe Baal's like, hmm. Perhaps he is deep in thought. Or he's busy. Surely he's busy doing something else. Maybe he took a trip. Maybe he is sleeping and you've got to wake him up. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. And midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, and no one answered, and no one paid attention. Picture yourself in the scene. We have, of course, the, the priest of, of Baal and the other prophets, and they are fully committed and sold out to this particular idea and belief. Then we have the people of Israel who have been wavering. They know the history they have with God. They know that they owe them their nation to God, and yet this looks so inviting in the present. And they waver back and forth. And then you have Elijah who says, you guys go first. And they begin to shout and shout, but no one answers. Do you know why? Do you know why? Because there's nobody there. Because there's no one there. Yes, there are altars and poles. Yes, there are ideas and philosophies. Yes, there are convictions and yes, there are behaviors, but there's no one there. The Bible says no one answered. 
you know, friends, you know what's going to happen in the story. And, and you could probably guess as you were there, uh, I don't think anything is going to happen. Is Baal real? Could he be real? And we might ridicule them and make fun of them just like Elijah did. But, but if we were honest with ourselves, too often you and I are hoping. Too often you and I are buying into some ideas, beliefs, and behaviors, hoping that there is something there when we know there's no one there. So no one will answer. See, friends, I, I'm convinced that we have, with good intentions, allowed ourselves to be identified by things rather than by a person. And though we call ourselves Christians, many of us have allowed ourselves to be identified by our financial worth, our careers, our success in certain ventures, or even our failures in certain ventures. And we refuse to acknowledge what God says and who he is. And in this moment, Elijah says, keep trying, but no one's going to answer. And the Bible tells us that he said to the people, verse 30, chapter 18, come here to me. And they came and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. There's a reason why they gathered at this place. For us, the words evening sacrifice doesn't mean much, but for them, it was a daily ritual of recommitting their day, what had happened, and glorifying God each and every day for who God was, how faithful he had been, and what he was about to do in the following day. So when it came time for the evening sacrifice, they would gather around, and the Bible tells us here that Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom God had, uh, whom the word of God had come to, saying, your name will be Israel. And with these stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two sails of sea, which is about 15 liters each. And he arranged the wood, cut the bowl in pieces, laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering uh, and on the wood. And then do it again. And they did it again. And do it a third time, he ordered. And they did it a third time. So that water ran down over the altar and even filled up the trench. And at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your command. So answer me, O Lord, so that these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Obviously, this is a new story to you. You may have seen some felts. I remember the picture books and the Bible stories. I remember thinking about it, preaching on it, and trying to imagine the scene, the smells, the sights, the sounds, the heat. You know what's about to take place. But I want you to, I want you to look in at what he's actually praying. Yes, they've been praying for fire to prove that there was a God, but nobody answers. And, and Elijah says, God, answer me now. Send, send fire down so that they will know that you are God. But, but not just to flex your power, listen, but the, so that they would know that you are turning their hearts back again. See, friends, the intent of God has always been to win your heart, not to overpower you. The intent of God isn't to control you. 
The intent of God isn't to hold you back or keep you down. The intent of God is to capture your heart so that you might know how truly and deeply he loves you. That's always what he's been after. And wouldn't it be great if that's what you and I did as a church community also? Wouldn't it be great if we as a community decided that we were going to capture the hearts of the people God sends our way rather than try to dominate them with our beliefs, rather than try to judge them and crush them with our self-righteousness? Wouldn't it be great if we could call upon the power of God in order to capture the hearts of people? Wouldn't it be great if we could call upon the power of God so that we might love them more? That's what God is after. And Elijah says, Answer me, O Lord, so that they will know that you are God, but that you are this kind of God. The kind of God who is turning their hearts back again. And the Bible says in verse 38 that the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. Isn't that cool? That the fire of God is so pervasive that it, that it, that it ate up everything and licked up the water in the trench. Elijah wanted to make it clear to those there that day that this wasn't some sort of random occurrence. It wasn't lightning. He wanted them to understand that God holding back the rains and choosing to make it rain now was an act of his mercy as well as his correction. It wasn't just coincidence. It wasn't just some random uh, storm. Some random front. But it was an act of God, his mercy as well as his correction. And so he says, send your fire, answer me. And God does. And God does. The Bible tells us God accepted the entire offering, the whole totality of it. Wouldn't it be great? If we could set up an altar here, I mean, every pastor's dream, honestly, is to set up an altar and call on God and that there would be fire. But I'll be honest too. One of the reasons we dream about that is because we think that if, if at our prayer fire came down, you might listen to us more. It's usually a very selfish fantasy. And that's not what Elijah's doing. See, Elijah, Elijah has shown us in the previous chapter that he will go where God sends him. Remember? He went to live at the mercy of ravens for a while. Birds fed him. Then he went and, and, and challenged a widow on her last meal to give him food first. Elijah isn't doing anything because he thinks it's a good idea. He's doing everything because God said so. So he has complete and has developed over time complete trust that God is guiding. And because God guides, he will provide where there seems to be no provision. Wherever God sends us, we can faithfully go because he's already there ahead of us. We do not have to waver and wonder. But that is what we do. Self-doubt, other ideas, other beliefs, circumstances continually challenge us to say, I don't know if God will be faithful in this situation. Or continually challenge us to interpret a circumstance as an act of Faithlessness from God 
rather than an invitation to patiently trust him. But Elijah, Elijah is moving at the speed of God. It isn't always fast, but it is deliberate. Elijah is moving at the speed of God because he wants us to fall in love with him again and to recognize that everything that he has done for us in the past is only there to sow seeds of trust for the future. Imagine if you and I this week look into our lives and in our hearts and in our families and we decided by the grace of God to take down the altars that exist there. I don't know what that altar is in your life. Maybe there's something that's taking up space, identifying you in a certain way. Maybe, there, maybe you are in a, in a relationship. Maybe you are in a, in a job, in a position. Maybe you are involved in something that is taking away your identity in Christ. Imagine if you and I could tear that down this week and instead rebuild on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ a new altar, a new model of trust and love and worship. Imagine that we would be fully committed to clearing out our houses and our lives and our jobs and our workplaces from things that take us away from God and put in instead things that bring us to God. What would feel different? What would sound different? What would taste or smell different in your life? Lately, I've been imagining what it would be like for us as a church community to do this. What if we, what if we took down the altars of self-righteousness that still exist in pockets of our church? What if we took down the, the altars of, of judgment that still happen when we look at each other and we put each other down, when we criticize each other, especially those whom we do not understand? What if we took that down and instead began to build altars built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ who says, come unto me, all ye who labor. The, the cornerstone of Christ who says, I don't care if your sins are red as scarlet, I can make them white as snow. The cornerstone of Christ who says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. What if we were a community, listen carefully, what if we were a community that was invested in blessing future generations with this truth? What if rather than trying to put them down and squeeze them out and make them feel bad, what if we drew them all in? Because after all, we don't own the church. We are not owners. God is challenging us to carefully manage this time, this season, this community and the people he has brought here, not to possess it. But what if we managed them according to his will? What if we managed our church and lived our life in this community by trying to win and capture the hearts of the people around us? You. You. Me. I'm convinced that God could do amazing things here. He's already doing that. But we keep putting the lid on it, and we've got to take the lid off. We have got to stop wavering. We have got to trust him. We've got to build on that cornerstone of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And if we do, friends, and if you choose to, and if we do it together, what amazing things 
will God do here in our community? How many will he rescue from the pit of despair? How many will he rescue from places and situations, habits that are really destroying them and their families through our faithfulness, through our love, through our commitment to do as God wants Turn back, turn back hearts to him, to draw others to him. We are not the cornerstone. Christ is, Christ alone. I dream of a day when that is what will be our defining mark rather than a, a wish and a hope. The people would say of our community, no, that's a community of hope. They believe in you. They will fight for you. They will invest in you. They will love you.